morning. If you could find your seats and turn to John chapter 18. Again, if you uh, would open up your scriptures to John chapter 18. Well, good morning. I have to say that's the worst part of my Sunday morning every morning is getting you guys to stop talking. It's good. I'm glad you enjoy each other. If you would turn to John chapter 18. We're going to be reading from verse 1 to verse 11. Again, John chapter 18, starting in verse 1. This is God's word. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kindred, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and officers from the chief priests and from the Pharisees, he went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So, if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given? Let's pray. Dear Holy Father, Lord, God, we come together this day and celebrate. We celebrate your Son. Your Son who not only came and lived a perfect life and not only died for our sins, but was raised on the third day. You rose him from the grave, giving us proof, Lord, that your wrath was satisfied that day on the cross, that our sins were paid for, and we can truly be forgiven. Lord, I pray this morning, as we come to this text, Lord, as we look at what it means to be saved, God. There's someone listening right now, even online or here in this room, Lord, that they wouldn't leave this place without reflecting on their relationship with you, on what you have done for them, Lord, sending your son to die on the cross. God, I pray that we reflect on that, Lord, and that you would bring new life to people this morning. In your son's name, amen. This passage I read this morning um, 
was the night that Jesus was arrested, which really set forth a chain of events. Of course, Jesus being arrested and then being crucified, being buried, and then on the third day being raised from the dead. Uh, a chain of events that really are the core of the gospel, the core of the Christian faith and religion. This passage is an unusual passage to preach on on Resurrection Sunday, but I really wanted to cover a topic this morning, which I believe in the church today, the modern church in America at least, a topic that's often misunderstood and very, very neglected. And that topic I want to talk about this morning is God's wrath. I have claimed here at this pulpit a number of times that you can't truly understand the love of God. You can't truly understand the love of God without understanding the wrath of God. I'm going to make a similar claim this morning. You can't truly understand the resurrection of Jesus, the significance of the resurrection, without understanding the wrath of God. So I have three points of the sermon this morning. First point is the wrath of man, then the wrath of God, and finally the resurrection. The wrath of man, the wrath of God, and the resurrection. So let's start with the wrath of man. Look at verse 2. It says this, Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place where Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. The first thing I want to point out in our passage this morning is that this group that was coming to arrest Jesus was an unusual group. It was an unusual group of, of people that you wouldn't normally see together. The, this crowd, again, coming to arrest Jesus, was made up of the chief priests, scribes, and the elders. This is mentioned in Matthew and Mark, and John, our passage, adds a band of soldiers. In the Greek, that word means cohort, which probably means there is two to three hundred Roman soldiers. This was not a small group. This was a large group coming to arrest Jesus. John also adds some officers, the chief priests, and the Pharisees. And if you keep going in verse 10, he even says a servant. There was probably slaves and servants with this group. And I want you to think about that. It's an unusual crowd. People, again, that you wouldn't normally see hanging together, doing something together as one. People from all different parts of life and different walks of life. You had the religious, and you also had the non-religious. You had the Pharisees, who were super religious. In fact, known for being legalists. And then you had the Roman soldiers, who were pagan, Greek pagans, who were hedonists. You had the Jews, and you had the Greeks, two groups of people that typically did not get along. In fact, as we go through the New Testament, we see there was hatred toward each other. You had the educated, the scribes. You had the blue-collar worker, a band of soldiers. You had the poor, servants or slaves. All these people came together with swords and clubs. That's what Mark says, the Gospel of Mark, and lanterns and torches and weapons. That's what the Gospel of John says. They all came together to arrest Jesus, to beat Jesus, and to eventually kill Jesus. In other words, this large group of unusual people was unified under one thing, wrath. They had a wrath an anger, a hatred of Jesus. 
Now, I believe this event, I want to be clear on this, is a historical event, a true event that really happened. But I also believe it's a picture of a biblical truth that we see throughout Scripture. The biblical truth is this, that mankind as a whole is angry with God. That man is wrathful toward God. Biblical truth, again, you see throughout Scripture. Let me just give you an Old Testament passage and a New Testament passage. Old Testament, Psalms 1, verse 2 says this, Why do the nations rage? That's wrath. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? In the New Testament, Romans verse chapter 8, verse 7 says this, The mind set on the flesh or the natural mind is hostile toward God. This crowd really represents this. In other words, it doesn't matter your upbringing, your education, your cultural status, your wealth, your background, your ethnicity. Before salvation, before God changes a person's heart, he is born, man is born hostile toward God. That's all of us. Now, I know what some of you are probably thinking right now. There might be a few of you that actually would admit, yes, I am angry at God. But most people, when they hear this biblical truth, think, I don't hate God. I've never been wrathful or angry toward God. Well, let me give you some ways man is wrathful toward God, and let's see if we can flesh out this truth a little bit. Just think of our nation right now, or society, our culture. We hate, as a culture, as a society, we hate God's definition of marriage. One man, one woman. Listen, if you want to see wrath, if you want to see a nation rage, Psalms 2, just go around and proclaim this truth. That marriage is one man, one woman, period. Besides that, it's not marriage. Or go around and tell people that there's only two genders. And you will see rage. You will see wrath. Or proclaim that life starts at conception. Therefore, abortion is murder. And you will see wrath. In fact, if you're angry with me right now for bringing up these topics, I would ask you to examine your heart question do you have anger toward god because this is not politics this is man's heart wrathful towards god's truth about marriage god's truth about sexuality god's truth about when life starts truth found in god's word revealed to us man's heart Man's natural heart is wrathful towards God because man wants to define what marriage is, what sex is, what gender is, what life is and when it starts. Therefore, we are hostile toward God. Mankind is wrathful toward God's sovereignty and authority that he rightfully has because we ourselves want to be sovereign. Anything that threatens our personal sovereignty, we hate. Because deep down within our heart, ever since the sin of Adam, man wants.
wants to be God himself. Now, maybe I haven't convinced you that your heart is born hostile toward God. Let me give you some more examples of how this hostility is manifest. One of the ways the hostility towards God is manifest is just by denying what scripture reveals about God. And instead, making up our own God. We say things like this, my God, stop there. My God is a God of love. Then we completely ignore all his other attributes that he's revealed in scripture, like his justice, his wrath, his holiness. We say things like this, my God doesn't judge, or my God doesn't send people to hell. In other words, we make up our own God, a God that doesn't demand anything from us, a God who submits to us, not the other way around. That's just a sign deep down inside your heart that you have a hatred towards the very first true God. Another way we show hostility towards God is just simply saying, I don't believe in him. That he hasn't shown me enough evidence That the creation, the stars, the the heavens that proclaim the glory of God, the scriptures that he has revealed to us, his son that he sent to us is not enough and you demand more. It's a sign of hostility towards God. Or another way we show hostility or wrath towards God, this may sound weird, but just by being indifferent towards him. We don't go to church, we don't read his word revealed, given to us, we don't pray. It's not that we don't believe in a God out there. It's just he's not worth our time and energy, which is a major sin. And let me say this, the only reason you are indifferent towards God right now, and not angry, because he hasn't got in the way of what you truly worship yet. Let me just ask this question. Again, examine your own heart on this. What is worth, because that's what worship means, what's worth the most. What is worth the most in your life? Just think about that for a second. Is it your wealth, your job, your position or status in society, your reputation? Is it your health? Or maybe something that's more honorable, like your family, your kids, your wife. Let me ask another question. Just be honest within your own heart. What would happen in your heart if God took away what you valued the most in this life? Would you say as Job did, who lost everything, naked, I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, in other words, all those things mentioned, God gave to me, God gave me life, he gave me breath, he gave me my family. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, Job 1, verse 21. Or would there be angry, anger in your heart? Another way we show hostility towards God, it's, Kind of the same thing, but opposite. It's by trying to control him through being religious. We say in our hearts, if I do this, if I go to church, if I give, if I pray, if I read my Bible, if I fast, 
if I live a righteous life, then God, you owe me fill in the blank. If I stay away from sin, then you owe me a good job or health. If I live a pure life, then you owe me a great marriage. If I raise my kids a certain way, then you owe me obedient children. But again, let me ask the same question that I asked the person that's indifferent towards God. What would happen if you lose your job, lose your health, lose your spouse? What would happen if your children rebelled? Would you be angry at God? Listen, man's natural state is hostility toward God. And this angry mob in John 18 represents this. It represents mankind. It represents us. We are born with a sin nature, with a sinful wrath within our hearts directed toward God. Therefore, because of our hatred of God, therefore, God is justly angry with our sin and rebellion. Romans 2 verse 5 says this, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. That is one of the scariest verses in all of scripture. Which leads me to the second point this morning. God's wrath, the wrath of God. Again, let me just recap what we've said so far. We, that's mankind, we are unjustly angry at God. Therefore, God is justly angry with us. Righteously wrathful toward us. But listen, this truth is what makes our passage so remarkable this morning. Look at verse 4. This angry mob representing mankind, mankind's wrath toward God angry mob comes to Jesus, verse 4, then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, said to the angry mob, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Now this phrase, I am he, is translated from two Greek words, ego and me. Ego means I a me is a being verb, meaning I am. So I am he is a good translation, but the word-for-word word translation is I am. Personally, I believe this is the best understanding of this passage, and let me quickly explain why. Jesus, throughout his ministry, but especially in the Gospel of John, uses this phrase, a go, a me, over and over and over again. Let me just give you a few examples, and these are few. Jesus says, a go, a me, I am the living bread, John 6.51. He says, I am the light of the world, John 8.12. He says, I am from above, John 8.23. I am the door, John 10.9. I am the good shepherd, John 10.11. I am the resurrection and the life, John 11.25. I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 14, 6. I am the true vine. 
John 15, 1, and the most famous, John 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am. This name, throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus is consistently connecting his identity with this name, the name of God, the great I am, revealed to Moses in the burning bush, Yahweh himself. Look what happens in verse 6. When Jesus said to them, I am they, this angry mob with 300 Roman soldiers, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now what happened here? Most theologians believe that at this moment, Jesus gave a glimpse, a glimpse of who he truly was. He revealed in a, in a measured way his divine nature, his divine glory, his divine power. He just slightly pulled back the veil of his humanity and displayed his divinity. And when he did this, when he said, I am, just by speaking, they drew back and fell to the ground. What's interesting, it's rare in Jesus' earthly ministry throughout the Gospels, it's rare that Jesus used his power in an aggressive way. We only see Jesus use his divine power really to heal, to feed, to rise the dead, raise the dead, to cast out demons. He even saved a, a wedding feast by turning water into wine. He caused the blind to see, the deaf to hear, the mute to speak. He caused the lame to walk. He rarely used his power in an aggressive way. But on this night, he speaks, and everyone just falls to the ground. Why? Why does he do this? Well, there's at least two reasons. First, and this is very clear in verse 7 and 8, he does this to protect his disciples. Look what it says in verse 7. As everyone's getting up to their feet, he is Jesus. He asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am. So if you speak, if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Jesus was protecting his disciples. But there's another reason, and this reason is extremely important, understanding not only Jesus' arrest, Jesus' death, and eventually his resurrection, Jesus was making it very clear to everyone as they fell to the ground, he was letting everyone know, not just the people there that night, but us too, the reader, that he is truly sovereign. That he is truly the one that was in control that night. That he is God. Jesus had unlimited power makes that clear to Peter. He says, I could call my father and he would send 12 legion of angels and wipe out the whole Roman Empire. Jesus had unlimited power at his hands and he could have responded to this angry mob, this, this mob that was coming with wrath towards him. He could have responded with his own wrath. And he would have been 100% justified in doing so. He had both the power and the right to just crush this rebellion coming to him. 
I think Peter actually understood this. Look at verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. In other words, Peter thought, we need to do something. We can't just let this mob arrest you and kill you unjustly. Jesus, that's evil. This evil needs to be stopped. Now listen, Jesus mildly rebukes Peter for this. But I want you to hear this. Peter wasn't completely wrong. Let me ask a question. You can raise your hand on this. You'll be proud of this one. How many of you are excited that for Jesus to come back? I feel an enthusiasm when I ask that question within these last couple years. But that leads to a second question. Within these last few years, why this enthusiasm? Let me, let me just ask a second question. How many of you are excited because Jesus is going to bring an end to all the, the evil opposition against him in Christianity? Listen, that's Peter. It's Peter. He wanted these evil men to be stopped. And even though Peter misunderstood Jesus and his purpose in his first coming, there's something righteous about that. It's justice. But Jesus does something so profound, something that completely goes against our human instinct. Jesus does not respond to this mob with wrath. Look at verse 11. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. In other words, Peter, I'm not going to fight. Instead, Jesus says this, shall I not drink the cup that the Father This is such an important phrase. In fact, I wish we could do a whole sermon series on this one phrase. We could just pick apart every single word. Shall I, shall I, Jesus, shall I not drink the cup? Shall I not drink the cup that the Father, my Father, has given to me? Such an important phrase. If you want to understand Christianity, you need to understand this phrase. Jesus says, shall I not drink the cup? Well, what's the cup? The cup is the cup of God's just wrath towards sin and sinners. The cup is God's just wrath towards mankind. Let me be clear, it's a horror on infinite scale. In antiquity, a king would often give a cup of poison to a traitor, and then he would force that traitor to drink the cup as punishment. The punishment was death for a traitor. We see something similar in the Old Testament, a number of passages, but let me just read one. Jeremiah 21, 15 says this, for thus the Lord, the God of Israel says to me, take this cup of the wine of wrath from my hand and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They will drink and stagger and go mad because of the sword that I will send among them. The 
Bible reveals consistently in both the Old and New Testament that, that God is wrathful towards sin and sinners. And you know why this is? Because God is just. It's because God is good and just. He will not just turn a blind eye toward evil and sin. He will judge sin justly. That's because he's a good judge. He's good. And the Bible makes it very clear that the price of sin is death. That's what God told Adam. You rebel against me, you'll eat from that one tree. What's the price? Death. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin, what you are owed because of sin, is death. Therefore, this angry mob, which again represents all mankind, this angry mob deserved death. They wanted to kill an innocent man. They wanted to kill the God of the universe, the God who created them. And listen, for how clueless Peter was, we pick on Peter a lot, right? I mean, rightfully so, but he understood one thing correctly that night. This angry mob was the one who deserved death, not Jesus. This angry mob deserved the wrath of God, not Jesus. But here's what is so astonishing about the gospel. And you only find this in the Christian religion, by the way. It's the only story that's different out there. What's astonishing about the gospel, what's astonishing about our passage, instead of Jesus responding with wrath, Jesus says this, Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? It's amazing. Listen, on the cross, when Jesus was getting murdered, on the cross, although completely innocent, completely righteous, perfect in every way, sinless, on the cross, Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath for you. The cup we deserve because we hated God, because we were wrathful towards him. Jesus took on the wrath of God so that whoever believes in him could have life, eternal life. And that's the meaning behind John 3.16. John 3.16. For God, this is God the Father. For God so loved the world. Let me stop there. The Bible is very clear. His enemies, the world that hated him, that rejected him, that abandoned him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. What's that mean? That he poured out his wrath on Jesus that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. saved not because of our goodness we are saved because Jesus satisfied the wrath of God on the cross that was owed to us he took our punishment the night that Jesus was betrayed mankind came to arrest and beat and kill Jesus and listen so important Jesus the cross he could atone for sin 
leads me to the third part of our sermon this morning. Resurrection. Resurrection. What does this all have to do with the resurrection? And many of you are like, we came here for the resurrection this morning. Simply this. The resurrection of Jesus, Jesus being raised from the dead, the resurrection of Jesus is the evidence that for those who put their faith in him, we are justified. It's the evidence that we are truly saved because the wrath of God was satisfied. If you don't understand that, then you don't understand why we celebrate it. If you don't understand the resurrection. Romans 4.25 says, Jesus who who was delivered up for our trespasses, for our sins, he was put to the cross, and, and God poured out his wrath on him and raised for our justification. The resurrection is the evidence, the proof that our sins were truly paid for. And therefore, we are saved. We have hope. This is why we celebrate today. The resurrection is our hope, it's our certainty, it's our it's our evidence. It's our evidence that we are truly saved. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. But listen, he is risen. He is risen, meaning our faith is not futile. Our sins have been that's good news. But it's only good news for those who have faith. So let me end by doing this. If you are here and you're not a Christian, I just want to be as honest as I can be with you. Romans 6.23 again says this, for the wages of sin is death. That's eternal death. That's the second death. That's hell. That's God's wrath darkness forever poured out on you. But here's the good news. That's only the first part of the verse. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God is offering you life this morning. He's offering it as a gift. So this is what I'd like to do. If we all could just bow our heads, close our eyes. And I just want to talk to those that aren't sure where they stand with the Lord this morning, aren't sure where their relationship is with God. I want to talk with you. If you don't know where you are with the Lord, simply repent and believe right now. Repent just means ask God for forgiveness for your sins, for your, your wrath and hatred towards him for your indifference towards him. Ask him for forgiveness in your heart. He can hear you. And turn from your sins and follow Christ. Recognize him as Lord, meaning you're not Lord, you're not sovereign, he is. And follow him. Repent from your sins and believe that Jesus came, lived a perfect life, paid the price for your sins on the cross and on the third day, God raised him from the dead, and he is now alive and well, sitting at the right hand of the Father. And 
one day will come back for his. Romans 10.9 says this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we celebrate. We are joyous this morning because we understand your wrath, Lord, and what we have been saved from. We understand the price of our salvation, that Jesus came and lived a perfect life, sinless, a spotless lamb, and not only died on the cross, the death was nothing. It was the wrath that was poured out on him from you, that whoever believes in him can be saved that you are just and you will make sure every single sin is paid for. Either we will pay for it in eternity in hell or for those that have put their faith in Jesus and cried out as their only hope, his atoning death, he will pay for it on the cross. God, I pray for those that are listening right now that may have just for the first time ever put their faith in you that you have awakened their dead heart. God, I pray that they understand these truths deeply and that they rejoice in this last song with us. I also pray, Lord, that they wouldn't leave this place without talking to someone about their decision, Lord, without coming and talking to a pastor or a friend that they trust that is godly, Lord. God, I pray that you protect them from Satan who will bring doubts into their minds. God, you are good. We thank you for your son. We thank you for his death, Lord. And we thank you that you have proven it all through his resurrection. God, be with us right now.